Why don't you guys stand, grab your Bibles, and uh, open them up to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to invite Constance up and read this morning's scripture. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, ESV, the certainty of God's promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Father, uh, what an incredible text this morning before us. God, I just, uh, my prayer is simple this morning that each and every one of us in here that are feeling weary, um, perhaps struggling with doubt, Lord, struggling to hold on to the hope that we have, I pray that you would give great confidence this morning, Lord, that you would give great assurance this morning that this passage, God, would ignite our hearts to praise and worship and repentance and growth. And God, as we contemplate this great anchor of our soul, this hope that we have that has gone behind the veil, our high priest, Jesus Christ. Lord, may this bring great comfort to our souls today. God, we thank you so much that you speak to us. May we listen in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did everybody get one of the handouts? Uh, They're at the front and the back of the room if you'd like to grab one. Feel free. That will kind of help you follow along the outline here. Well, have you ever noticed that uh, confidence, or I should say patience and confidence sort of go hand in hand? Those two things often are connected. Uh, Another way to say it, when we feel like the hand that is holding what we are waiting for is trustworthy, we tend to wait more patiently. Let me say that again. When we feel like the hand that is holding what we are waiting for, is, we have, when we, when we have confidence in it, we, we tend to wait more patiently. Let me give you an example. Uh, maybe a year ago, I don't know, we went to McDonald's with some friends because, uh, not that I feel like I have to explain why we were at McDonald's, <laughs> but... It's a great place for the kids to play, right? Okay. Great place for the kids to play. And hey, I, I like some Mickey D's. Okay. Um, anyway, so we get there with our friends. <clears throat> and I put my order in like you do. And then, you know, it's my job sort of as the, the, the father figure in the house to go get the food while my family visits with our friends and the kids kind of wait. And so I'm standing there and I have my receipt and I, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it's 10 minutes and it's... 20 minutes, and I start to think, hmm, I wonder if they maybe like fumbled my order, you know, maybe they forgot, 
And so, you know, I go to the counter. Hey, did you guys forget? Oh, no, no, we, we, we got it. You're good. Okay. All right, fine. So I waited another 10 minutes. And at this point, I'm watching all the door dashers come and I'm watching people order their food and get their food and order their food and get their food. And I'm just thinking, what in the world is going on? Get close to 40 minutes. My family is about to lose their mind. Where's the food? Where's the fries? We're hungry. Where, what's going on? We're dying. And I'm just standing there frustrated. I finally go back to the counter and I say, hey, I think you forgot my order. And they go, oh, whoops, we never put your order in. <laughs> okay, so, so it took me 40 minutes. No, what's my point? My point is I, I waited very impatiently. Why? Because I have zero confidence, right? I have zero confidence in McDonald's. I'm sorry. Uh, I have zero confidence in whether they're going to actually put my order in or not. I just didn't really necessarily know if they would or if they wouldn't. So I, I waited very impatiently. And the same is true oftentimes with, with the Lord. You know, we, we, our level of patience is often directly connected to how much confidence we have in the Lord, whether we think he really truly is good. You know, there's someone in the Bible that you're familiar with who struggled with this idea early on. Uh, his name was Abraham. Abraham, uh, God gave him this promise. We're gonna talk about it this morning in our text. God gave him this promise that he was gonna multiply his children like the stars in the sky, that he, he gave him all of these blessings, or he told him, he promised him all these blessings, but he didn't give it to him right away. So what did Abraham do? He took things into his own hands, right? He, he took his wife's terrible advice. Hey, why don't you just go sleep with, with the maidservant and uh, we'll create our own progeny. We'll create our own, you know, uh, son. And, you know, maybe God needs our help. <clears throat> maybe, he, he didn't really, maybe he didn't really know what he was doing. Or maybe Abraham was thinking that that statement, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible. Maybe he was thinking that. You know, maybe God will bless us if we just sort of take things. So Abraham struggled early on to really trust the Lord multiple times. But what we find about Abraham is that he got to know the Lord. And as he got to know the Lord, he started to trust the Lord more. It says in the Bible that Abraham was the friend of God. It means he knew his character. He understood who he was. And because he understood who he was, we see a very different Abraham in Genesis 22, right? When God says to sacrifice his one son, and what is Abraham going to do? He's going to trust the Lord this time. My point is just simply that as we walk with the Lord and as we get to know the Lord, we begin to trust the Lord. And as we begin to trust the Lord, we find ourselves able to sit more patiently, more steadfastly. This morning, our text, I think, deals with those two ideas. And you'll notice at the top of, of your handout that, that I put there, patience, proof that leads to patience, I think is what, what we're, we're calling it. The author here seeks to give proof to the audience that will lead them to a posture of patience where they can sit and trust the Lord because often we have to wait for God's promises. To quote the Princess Bride, I hate waiting, right? I hate waiting. It's the worst, right? Waiting's the worst, but that's the Christian life. Get used to it. The Christian life is waiting, okay? We're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for some of these things that we're working through to grow out of them. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. How do we wait patiently? This is what the text is gonna help us to do this morning. Now, the issue, as you know, <clears throat> man, my, I just, I wish I could speak louder. Um, it's just gonna be a mellow morning. I'm just, we're gonna be mellow this morning. Okay, okay. Uh, anyways, you guys, I get passionate, so it's hard when I can't express it. The, the problem that's facing this church is that they are drawing back and they're holding loose. What are they drawing back from? What are they holding loose? The gospel, Jesus Christ. See, these Jewish Christians that the author's writing to were living in a time where Christianity was not the most popular choice. And because of that, uh, they're dealing with hardship and persecution and struggle. And the temptation for them is to say, maybe we can go back to following God the Father without worshiping God the Son, see? It's, it's the same Father, and, and after all, we kind of miss the temple, and we miss the tabernacle, and we miss the continuity, and we miss the credibility and the, the, the foundation of Judaism. We liked all that stuff. So maybe we could just leave this Christ thing and let's go back to the Yahweh thing. But there's a problem with that, right? And that is the Christ thing is the whole thing, right? The Jesus thing is the whole thing. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. He's trying to get them to hold fast to Jesus, to draw near to Jesus. Don't draw back. Don't hold loose. You need Christ. He's the whole deal. There is no good news without Jesus. Jesus is the good news. And the good news is the message of Jesus. 
So the author of Hebrews today is going to re-secure the wavering hand of the Hebrew church back to the handhold of confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. You ever been rock climbing before? Have you ever climbed something and, and, or climbed a tree when you were a kid and you, you reached out for a branch and you grabbed that branch but apprehensively don't know if that branch really is going to hold my weight? So you kind of, you, you sort of hold on to the other one just in case. The author of Hebrews is trying to bring confidence that as these, these, these believers reach for the person of Christ, that they can take hold confidently that they are anchored into this handhold of Jesus Christ. What I love about our passage this morning is there's, very, there's really no imperatives, meaning there's no action words. This passage is a declarative passage. It tells us what is, what is true of God. And oftentimes that's all we need. Oftentimes we look at God and we see who he is and it changes our character without even us even having to be told to do something. When we see God, it changes our character. So the author, if you remember, he, he paused this Christological sermon that he was on talking about Melchizedek and the high priesthood. He paused it and he took a minute to be uh, pastoral and to sort of lead and guide these guys into to seeing their own weaknesses. He said, you guys are too immature to get what I'm laying down here. So I need you guys to change your diet from milk to meat. And we determined that milk is not the gospel. No, no. Milk is the extemporaneous things that are supposed to get us to the gospel. Meat is going deeper into the gospel. That's what the meat is. So he says, you need to grow up. And then he, he, he warns them of the path that, that they could potentially be on. He says, this path of holding loose Jesus could lead to apostasy. It could lead you away in such a way that you can no longer find repentance. And then he encourages them last week and he says, but I, I'm confident that you guys are not among them. And now, just before he gets back into his Christology that he was doing, he's going to encourage them by reminding them of the person, the character, the covenant of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, if you have your outline, go ahead and fill these five things in. Our, our text outlines like this. First, in verse 13 and 14, we have the precedent. And no, not president. Okay, don't. Not, not president, precedent, okay, different, uh, precedent. Number two, and that's verse 13 and 14, by the way. Number two, we have the posture in verse 15. Number three, we have the principle, verse 16. The proof, 17 and 18. And the placeholder, 19 and 20. Again, precedent, posture, principle, proof, and placeholder. I should have thrown, yeah, placeholder. I should have thrown a different letter in just on one of them, just to mess, just to mess it up. Placeholder, that's number five. Let's work through this. First, the precedent. Now, before we dive in, let me give you the context, okay? The context, if you notice, the first word of verse 13, where we're gonna start, we see the word for. This word signals to us that he's continuing a thought that he's already been developing. He's double-clicking on an idea that he's already been working through. What is that idea? We'll look back at verse 11. He said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what he's gonna do now is he's going to double click on this idea of assurance and full, or full assurance of hope until the end. And he's gonna say, here's how you can have full assurance and hope until the end. He's also gonna interact with this word patience that he brought up. He said, imitate people that have patience and faith in the Lord. And now he's gonna bring up a character in the Old Testament who is a model for patience. And his name's Abraham, okay? So that's where we're gonna start. Now, before I read verse 13, I need to give you a quick background on Abraham, okay? For those of you that all you know about Abraham is the song, Father Abraham had many sons. That's not bad. That's some good, that, that's helpful. Uh, let me just give you a quick primer on the person of Abraham. Let me remind you who he is because the audience or the author is assuming here that his audience knows who Abraham is, right? He's, under, he's assuming that they have this good, robust understanding of the significance of Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, the promises of God to Abraham. So let me just unpack a few things about Abraham. First of all, Abraham was chosen from pagans. You remember that? He was called from Ur of the Chaldees. 
okay? Uh, wait, I thought Abraham was a, a Jew. Well, he was the OG Jew, right? He came before Jews were even Jews. He, he was literally a Gentile called into this covenant with God. Wasn't it, isn't that crazy? And what that means for us is that Abraham has a lot of significance. He actually is our example because he was the first, really, Gentile to be called and made uh, and, and to be given this covenant, this belonging with God. And how did he get it? He got it through faith. See, Abraham was justified. Romans will tell you all this. Abraham was justified when? Was it when he was circumcised? Was it when he was given, uh, when he got Isaac? Was it when Moses and the law came? No, he was justified before all of that stuff, which means he was saved exclusively by God's grace through faith. Therefore, Abraham becomes the prototype of every believer who ever existed. Every believer has always been saved by faith, by God's grace through faith, simply believing God's word. This is what Abraham's significance is for us, but he's much more than that. He was also the progenitor, uh, not only of justification by faith, but by the way, progenitor means the first in the family. Okay, he was also the progenitor of ethnic Judaism. Okay, God had a lot of firsts in the Bible. Adam was a first. Noah was another first. It wasn't going well. I picked Adam. Things didn't go well. Picked Noah. Things didn't go well. He picks another first, Abraham. Abraham was the first uh, to be this part of this ethnic Israel that God has called and made covenant with. Okay, so, so Abraham is also that. He had Isaac. Isaac had the 12 patriarchs, which led to Israel. You know, the word Jews actually didn't come until much later. That was a derivative of Judea, uh, Judea southern Israel. So really, they, they were Israel, which was Jacob's other name, right? So uh, this is just backdrop on Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the recipient of something called the Abrahamic Covenant, Okay, you guys are familiar with covenants. There's many in the Bible. You can read about it in Genesis 12, Genesis 22, Genesis 16, and a few other places as well. God recapitulates this covenant multiple times. And here's what the covenant of Abraham was. The covenant of Abraham was that God was going to bless Abraham by giving him land, by giving him a huge family, by blessing him with his presence, and lastly, by blessing the whole world through his lineage. So there's really four main hanging points for the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Uh, Just need to remember that. Uh, Was that a dog? Was that a dog? Oh, it's dry Joe, sorry. Your your son's cuter than a dog. Okay, that was cute. Okay, first, okay, let's dive in. So that's quick backdrop on Abraham. Let's let's focus. First 13, man. Four. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So the author here brings up Abraham. Why is he bringing up Abraham? Well, the point is not the Abrahamic covenant. This is not necessarily why he's bringing up Abraham. He's bringing up Abraham because he wants to show the way in which God promised the covenant. And that's where we get the precedent. God God is setting a precedent here for the way in which he promises things. God makes promises. He is a God of words. God says things. He says he's going to do things. He promises he's going to do things. And he is very much concerned that we have faith in his words and faith in his promise. So God made a promise to Abraham. And the author wants us to see how he made that promise to Abraham. So what are we meant to see in this reference? Well, first of all, we're we're meant to see that God not only said it, he swore it. Okay, there's two things God's doing here. Just tuck that away for about 10 minutes, okay? He both said it and he swore it. He gave an oath and a promise. Those two things, just tuck that away. The other reason he's bringing this up is that he's trying to show that when God said it, he was good for it. And those reading this in hindsight know that, don't they? They think Abraham, they think, hey, God told Abraham he was gonna do something and what do you know? He did it. Okay, so he's bringing up something that is immediately an illustration of God's faithfulness to follow through on his word. And there's a third reason he brings this up. He wants them to see that when God swore it, listen, his own character was that which assured it. What does it say? It says, since God had no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself. 
Okay, there's this really cool moment in Genesis chapter 15. And you gotta hear about it. It's, it's, it's actually the moment where Abraham had been given the promise of God. And even though he had been given the promise of God, he was sort of wavering a little bit. When is this gonna happen, Lord? And so God, wanting to give Abraham more faith and more clarity, he says, Abraham, I want you to go prepare a covenant for you and I. Now, there was a custom in that day where you would take animals and you would split the animals right down the middle. Uh, and no, I don't mean put them in different pins. I mean, literally right in the middle, okay? And you, that's probably the sound it would make. Um, <laughs> so bad. Uh, you split the animals down the middle and then you and the other party that you're entering into a covenant with would go in the middle of the parted animals, that was a custom of the day that, that God is deploying because it's something Abraham would have understood. So he says, Abraham, I'm, if, if you're having a hard time trusting me, let's make, let's make a covenant. Okay, you go prepare it. So Abraham prepares it, and then Abraham falls asleep. Why did he fall asleep? Because God put him to sleep. Because he didn't want Abraham messing it up. So Abraham falls asleep. He has this vision and this dream about the Egyptian captivity, and you can read all about it in Genesis 15. While Abraham's asleep, God comes down in the form of a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. Picture that however you want. <laughs> the point is, he, he embodies something, and he himself passes through the animals. Why is he doing that? He's doing it. Because God didn't have an interest in making a covenant with Abraham. Listen, he had an interest in making a covenant for Abraham. What happened when God made a covenant with Adam? Adam blew it. What happened when God made a covenant with Noah? Noah blew it. So what did God do with Abraham? He said, I'm going to make a covenant of grace. A covenant that is not contingent on your ability to fulfill it, but rather a covenant that is contingent on my own faithfulness. So God made the covenant with himself. Now, when God swore by himself, it means that God, there was no one more trustworthy that God could, could use to, to, to appeal to than his own nature. We'll see that more here in a minute. Now, just set that to the side for a moment. We're going to come back to that. Remember that story, Genesis 15. Part of the reason that the author's bringing this up is he wants the audience that is struggling to trust God, he says, if you're struggling, struggling to trust God in his future faithfulness, just take a look back at his past faithfulness. And that's a good principle. There's a good principle there. When you're struggling to trust God, is he gonna come through? Well, has, has he before? Yes. You remember when uh, the Israelites went over the Jordan? What did God tell them to do? He said, put 12 stones on the side, put 12 stones in the middle of the river. Why? So that generations would remember the faithfulness of God. Someone once told me that, that the Jordan River in times of drought would get low enough that those 12 stones in the middle would be exposed. That therefore forming a remembrance for generations of struggle that they could see God is faithful. Okay, so we need to look back. And this is what the author's doing. He's turning our heads back to Abraham and he says, you think God's faithful? You think God delivers on his promises? Well, look what he did with Abraham. Now, we're meant to see not only that God works, but how God works. Again, he's setting a precedent here for how God promises. We learn some things about God here too, don't we? We learn that God desires us to be confident. Christianity is not blind faith. God, God doesn't desire you to just blindfold yourself and walk around saying, faith, faith, faith. He wants you to open your eyes. He wants you to use your brains. He wants you to use your logic. He has a convincing message for you, and he wants us to be convinced we also learn here about God that he is uncategorizable. That's why he is the I am, right? Meaning there's no one really that you can explain God with besides God himself. He is the I am that I am. There's no one like him. We also learn here that when God really wants something done, what does he do? He does it with himself, <laughs> right? When God really wants something done, he does it with himself, we also learn that God works on his own timeline. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. So that's the precedent. Now let's look at the posture. I want you to see the logic, by the way, that the author builds here. There's logic that's building. Now in verse 15, he's going to make a point about Abraham. He says, thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, so, so here we're not just meant to see the means by which God makes promises. We're meant to see here the expectation of his people when they wait patiently for them. That's our job. His job is to promise. Our job is to trust and wait. Okay, that's, that's the relationship here. So the posture of Abraham is key here. Thirdly, we see the principle in verse 16. 
Now, the author has made uh, his point with a picture, Abraham. Now he's going to make it with a universal principle. Look at it in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. He's just bringing up a generally true universal reality. What is the generally true universal reality? It is that when two parties enter into an agreement with one another, third party is typically brought in to assure confidence. So if you buy a house, what happens? Usually some kind of a lawyer perhaps will be involved. Some kind of a uh, legal person will be involved. Why? So that, that there's a promise there that when you say you're going to pay that, this amount of money on a house, you're actually going to pay it. And if you don't pay it, then the legal party can actually get involved and hold you accountable. If you have bad credit and you go to buy a car and they say, sorry, you can't buy a car. What will they say? They say you could get a cosigner. What does that mean? It means you're borrowing someone else's credibility. Because we only have so much credibility. So what the author here is saying here, he's saying that God has no one higher to bring accountability and credibility into the contract of his promise. So what does he appeal to? He appeals to himself. There is no one greater. There is no one higher. There is no one more credible than God. Now, what does God bring in for credibility and accountability? Let's see it. Verse, uh, verse 17, here we see the proof. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. By the way, isn't that cool? God desires to give us more confidence. He's not trying to make your life hard. He's not trying to hide from you. He wants you to be confident in the gospel. Confident in salvation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the unchangeable character of his purpose, what did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And there's a lot there. Let me just break it down simply. God is desiring to give us confidence in his word. How does he do that? The author says he does it two ways. Let me give them to you. Write them down. That's in your handout. Two ways. First, he does it with the worth of his word. Secondly, he does it with the objectivity of his oath. Okay, the worth of his word and the objectivity of his oath, or credibility of his covenant. Either of those work. First, let's start with the worth of his word. What is he saying here? He's saying we can believe God's word. Why? Because God literally cannot lie. Did you know that there are things God cannot do? That's a good thing to understand. Some people trip out about the way he's God, right? He's sovereign, so that means he can do whatever he wants. Well, yes and no. He is sovereign over all created things, but God cannot offend his own nature. God cannot do something that would actually contradict his own nature. It is impossible. It's not just a choice. God's just not like, well, I, I, I don't think I will lie because I am God. That might be bad for my image, for my brand, my God brand, you know? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I literally cannot lie. Like, I literally cannot fly to the moon on my own right now with no spaceship. Not possible. Just can't do it. God's like, it's impossible. So what does that mean? It means that we can take him at his word because his word is based on his nature and his nature is, listen, ultimate reality. There's nothing more serious or real or hard and fast than the very nature of God. It's the most credible thing we have. Not only can God not lie, he is also unchangeable. You see that in verse 18? We'll learn that elsewhere in Hebrew. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. He can change his mind, but he doesn't change. He does not change. So the point here, the author is saying, you can take God at his word because his word is synonymous with his very nature. This is why, catch this, this is why Jesus could say he was the word of God. This is why John said Jesus was the logos, the word of God. God's word is his nature and his being. Now, that's not like us. I could get up here and I could say things, and those things could be true or not. 
I can disconnect myself from my words. I can lie because I'm a fallen, sinful human creature. God is not. So while I can say words that are not corresponding with reality, God cannot. God's words always correspond with reality. His words and his nature are synonymous. And so Jesus is the ultimate word of God because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate expression of God, the ultimate communication of God. He is God's word. Isn't that cool? God's word is ultimate reality. There is nothing more sure in this life than God's word. And what makes you a believer is not that you believe God exists. What makes you a believer is that you believe God's word. Meaning like you actually believe it. Meaning when God says something, you go, I will do that. I may stumble and bumble and fumble through it, but I'll take him at his word. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is not just someone that believes in the existence of God. A Christian is someone that believes in the word of God, the promises of God. So we have these two things. First, the worth of his word. Secondly, the objectivity of his oath. Now, God could have simply said, you don't need an oath. Just my word is sufficient. He could have said that. But God's so gracious. He's so kind. He says, I don't want you to just have my word. I want you to have something tangible that you can literally take to the bank, something physical that you can literally see. So he says, it says that he gave an oath as well. Well, what's the oath? What is the oath? What is this tangible thing that God has done? You know, when God seeks to make his promises known, he makes typically a covenant. And when he makes a covenant, he typically gives some kind of physical representation of that. We have one in the sky all the time. It's called the rainbow. What is the rainbow? It's, it's a reminder that God made an oath. God made a promise. God made a covenant. And he codified it in the sky. So how has God made an oath to us in this new covenant? Well, now I want you to pull back that thing out I just explained. Genesis 15. What did God do? He put Abraham to sleep, and then he passed through himself. What did he do? He made a covenant with himself. There's, there is such a similar connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. Because in the same way, in the new covenant, God didn't make a covenant with you. Who did he make a covenant with? Himself. How? He made it with his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the, the gospel is that God the Father made a covenant with God the Son and that you cannot earn it, that you cannot break it or ruin it or destroy it because you didn't make it. You simply believe in it and are grafted into it by faith. It's Christ's covenant with the Father. Really quick, flip over to 1 Peter 1. 18. This is really important that we get this. 1 Peter 1.18. It <clears throat> Here's what Peter says. We've been studying this, by the way, guys, on Saturday mornings. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed, who were we ransomed from? Sin? Yeah. Sin? Satan, yeah. Who were we ultimately ransomed from? Anybody? God. Wait a minute. The, the, the gospel, the salvation that we believe is that we were ransomed from the Father by the Son. Because as sinful creatures, we were beholden to the righteous justice of God's own nature. So the Son came in to ransom us. Knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that's Adam. We were in Adam and we were all dead because we were all in Adam. Knowing that, uh, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were we ransomed by? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. He spent his blood to buy you back like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was for, now here's the part we want you to see. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. When did God make this covenant with the Son? Before the foundation of the world. That's crazy. Think about that for a minute. Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Look at one more. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Probably the coolest chapter in the whole Bible. 
Ephesians chapter one. This is the longest run-on sentence in the world, I think. Paul chapter one, verse three through 14 is all one sentence. No punctuation. He says, blessed be the God, verse three of chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. What I want you to see here, he goes on, uh, and there's more we could say, but what I want you to see here is, is that the, the new covenant is a covenant of grace made between God the Father and God the Son. And the cross is the oath. The cross is the moment where that became reality. And by faith, we are grafted into that salvation. God didn't want a covenant with you. He wanted a covenant for you. What does that mean? Well, it's really good news, actually, because it means that you can't totally screw it up if you're in it, because it's not based on your own ability to have faithfulness. It's, it's based on faith and his faithfulness. God is faithful to the covenant he has made with his son, and he chose you to be part of that. That's really good news. Anybody else think that's good news? Oh, yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right, so that's the proof. How do we have the proof? So the author says, we have this proof by these two unchangeable things. God said it, and then he did it. He said it, and then he proved it. So we have this sure covenant. And by the way, the sign of it, the sign of it, the down payment is the Holy Spirit. He, he, he wire transferred the Holy Spirit into your body, into your life, as the earnest of future kingdom realities to come. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's amazing. He's, he's given us the sign. That's the new version of circumcision for the believer is the Holy Spirit. Praise God. <laughs> you know, got to make the cut some way. Okay. Sorry. Just, I'm like waiting for it to, to connect. Okay. Uh, let's move on. The placeholder. Verse 19. The placeholder. Now he's going to end here. He says, we have, this sure, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I love that. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What curtain is he talking about? Is he talking about the curtain of Herod's temple? No. He's talking about the real curtain. Guys, when man sinned in Genesis 3, a real curtain went up. A real curtain of disconnect between God and man. There, the, the temple and the tabernacle, I've said this before, the temple and the tabernacle were models of a more real thing in heaven. God's real throne room in which we as humans in Adam are separated from. Jesus went to that throne room. He went behind the curtain and he tore the curtain. And now we have access in Christ to the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies where God is seated. He's our high priest he went in for us on behalf, he says, he's our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he gives us this vivid picture of an anchored boat. And you can imagine this boat is meant to be pictured tossing to and fro in the waves, giant waves crashing over the side. And this boat could be capsized. It could go down. But what hope does this boat have? The hope is that it is anchored. And because it is anchored, it is steadfast and is sure and it is immovable. This is the picture he wants us to see. He wants us to think about when we picture our own connection to Christ. What it means is that, listen, when Jesus went to the Father at the ascension, he took a rope with him. And that rope is attached to his kids, to his sheep, to his people. Have you guys watched the documentary about those kids that got trapped in the cave somewhere? I think it was in South America. No, it was in Thailand. Did you, get, did you guys see that? It happened a few years ago. These kids were exploring a cave. It was like 12 kids on a soccer team and their coach. They get... 
stuck in the cave because a tsunami or monsoon comes and it rains and the whole cave is filled with water. And these guys are like miles and miles back. You got to watch it. They made a movie out of it too. It's really cool. Uh, so what did they have to do? These divers came in from all over the world. These Navy SEALs were trying to get in. They couldn't. They didn't have the experience. So these, these old, like, these, these divers that just did it for fun, they came in. And, and after multiple tries, they finally made it all the way to the back of the cave. But then, of course, you know, the, the real story started because how are you going to get these kids out? It took some four hours to dive in there, and they're professionals. How are you going to get these little kids out? So not spoiler alert, but they, they end up having to the, put them under and like tape masks to their face and drag them out for four hours under anesthesia. It's the craziest thing. But in order for that rescue mission to work, the only way it could work was because one diver had to go in first and bring a rope. And once the rope was established, it was easier for the rest of the team to come along behind. So this word here, I want you to note it, this word on our behalf, or forerunner, pardon me, forerunner, that Greek word apparently was used in the first, second century Greek uh, world to describe a smaller boat that was sent out into a harbor when the, the storm was too crazy to secure a larger boat. So the smaller boat would go into the harbor and it would secure the rope to the shore so that the bigger boat could find its way into the harbor and be safe. And it's very likely that this is what the author has in mind when he says, he says, Jesus is our forerunner. He went before us. You ever wonder why Jesus needed to go to heaven? Wouldn't it have been better if he just stayed here? He needed to go to bring a rope. And he's going to bring us with him. Remember what Jesus said? He said, where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then where I am, you will be also. It says that we are seated with him in heavenly places. There is a rope. And it's a strong rope. Jesus went behind the curtain. And because he went behind the curtain, guess what? We, too, will go behind the curtain. It's like Normandy Beach. We needed to establish a beachhead in Europe in order for the rest of the Allied forces to be able to follow. So the first guy off the boat was pretty important. Jesus was the first guy off the boat. He put death to death. He paid our sin debt. He gave us his righteousness. And he went to the Father to lead the way. He's our pioneer of salvation. He's the author, the champion of salvation. Peter calls him our living hope. Remember that? Our living hope. Our hope is living. Our hope isn't just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. Our hope is a person. And he's alive. He's at the right end of the Father. And because he's there, we're going to be there. That's great hope. He went before us. And that's why he's our placeholder. That's why I had to put that there. He's our placeholder. You know, you ever go to the movies and you're worried, so you send a friend ahead early to save you seats, and you're not worried about it, right? Because your friend saved you seats, okay? Jesus has saved us a place. He's our placeholder. And like I said in the beginning in my introduction, your confidence in your placeholder will have a lot to say about how patient you are and how patiently you wait. If you really believe that he is where he said he is, if he really is at the right end of the Father, if he really rose from the dead, we got nothing to worry about. We have this anchor of the soul. What does the soul mean? The soul means your deepest part of who you are, your being, is anchored. Anchor of the soul is literally a definition of the word hope. Christian hope, what's the definition? Anchor of the soul. When we think of hope, we think of how we use it in our culture, which is to be a positive inclination or an optimistic expectation. You know, I hope I live to be 85. I hope I live to be 90. I hope that I win the lottery. I hope, whatever. That's not the kind of hope that's being talked about here. This hope in the Bible means absolute assurance and anticipation of God's coming salvation. It's an anchor of the soul. We know it's coming. And hope, don't get it confused with faith. See, faith is trust. Hope is what comes from trust. When you have faith, then hope comes. Hope is the result of that. And I love how Leon, Leon Morris, he says, the author, regarding this text, he says, the author is not saying simply that hope secures the spiritual aspect of a man, not just eternal security. It's this, he says, he is affirming that hope forms an anchor for the whole of life. The person with a living hope has a steadying anchor in all they do. It's not just, oh, well, I'm harnessed in, so it, yeah. And the hope of heaven secures your life. It allows you to be a more stable person, a more reliable person, a more consistent person, 
a person of peace. It's really what Christians should be in times of trouble. We should be illustrations of what it looks like to live in, in really bumpy water because we're anchored to the shore. So, Stepping back and just looking at our passage, it's like, what is this whole passage about? I think the, the point here, the main outcome, the burden of the text is that we need to anchor ourselves. We need to see our anchor in Christ. We need to hold on to him. We need to remember his nature. You know, oftentimes we think the problem is my faith. It, it could be actually your perspective. You're just not looking at God. Who is God portrayed as in this passage? He's portrayed as sovereign, meaning there's no one above him. He's portrayed as someone who is unchanging, meaning he's completely reliable. And he's portrayed as someone who cannot lie. If your faith is struggling, it could be that you need to open your eyes to the reality of God's nature. And that's what this author's trying to get the, the audience to do. Open your eyes and look at the handhold that you have your hand on. And not only are you holding on to him, he's holding on to you, and that's even better news. So, Let's end with this. Three reasons you can walk, or pardon me, three reasons you can wait on the Lord patiently. You can write them down if you want. Three reasons you can wait on the Lord patiently. Number one, because what he does through you may not be seen or experienced by you. Okay, what he does through you may not be seen or experienced by you. I think it's funny and not by accident that he picked Abraham to, to make this illustration. Abraham got to see Isaac, but he didn't get to see anything past that, did he? I mean, you could say, yes, he did in, in, in the next life, right? But, but in, his, in this age, Abraham did not ever get to see the realization of the covenant, did he? So that, you, you mean that, that God is sometimes more concerned about what he's going to do um, through or what he's going to do through what I did, but I may never see it? You mean God might be doing something bigger than I get to enjoy? Yeah. Somebody once said, the, the biggest thing you ever do in life may not be something you do, it may be someone you raise. Now, your kids might do bigger. They, the person you disciple might do bigger things. That's kingdom thinking. That's kingdom mindset, right? Kingdom mindset is it's not about whether I get to see it or enjoy it. It's just that it happens. Abraham was a pivotal guy, but he never actually got to see Israel. Ultimately, I know he did, but in this age. The second thing, the second reason that you can wait on the Lord patiently is because, and this is an important one, because he is more concerned with what he is doing in you than what he is doing through you. He's more concerned with what he's doing in you than what he is doing through you. And in Christian culture, we always like thinking about what God's doing through me. God, I want to do stuff for you. I want to make an impact. That's good. That's good. But just don't forget, God's primary focus with you is what he's doing in you. And that's actually harder work. He could do stuff through you anytime he wants. He's shaping something of eternal value in you. It, it's no accident that a lot of the guys that did the biggest stuff in the Bible didn't do it until they were like 80 years old. Moses was like an old guy, right? Abraham was an old guy. Sometimes God has to do some stuff in us before he can do some stuff through us. And this is just a side note, but you know, God didn't choose Abraham because he was qualified. He, qualif he, he was qualified because God chose him. Think about that one. Abraham didn't have time to be qualified. Abraham wasn't in Ur, just like crushing it. Like, man, I'm the best guy in Ur. God's like, ooh, I want that guy on my team. No, he picked Abraham because he picked Abraham because he's that good. And that's what made Abraham qualified was that God picked him. God uses broken vessels. And sometimes we have to have a few cracks in our pot before God's glory can shine through. So we pray for healing. We pray that we wouldn't have to suffer. And oftentimes God answers those prayers. Other times he says, hey, don't forget, it's what's in you that's more important. We have to remember that. Otherwise, we don't know how to suffer. And, and, and life is pain, highness, right? Anyone that says otherwise is selling you something. Number three, you can wait on the Lord patiently because God shows you to see, this is really important. God shows you to see something more than he chose you to do something. He chose you to see something more than he chose you to do something. Why did God save you? Was it because he just couldn't do it without you? Was it because he just couldn't live without you? 
If you listen to, you know, mainstream evangelical Christian songs, you'd think that. God saved you to glorify himself. Consequentially, his glory is our greatest joy because there's nothing greater than him. So that's good news. God saved you to show something both to you and through you. Look at, the ver- look at our text in verse 17. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of what? His purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. God's desire is to show himself. It's the, only, it's the best answer I have to why God started this whole thing in the first place. Why create a world? Why redeem it? Why do it? Because there's something God is trying to share about himself that had never been understood before. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to this. So that through the church, that's you and I, the manifold, meaning the fullness of, the whole palette, the whole complete picture, wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had, that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did God save you? Because he wanted to show something to you and he wanted to show something through you. He wanted to reveal his grace and his goodness and his justice to who? Rulers in heavenly places. Isn't that cool? What does that mean? Well, it means that even if I don't do anything super cool for the Lord, my primary job as a creature saved by grace is to behold the glory of God and to enjoy it forever. That's actually why you were made. That doesn't mean God's not gonna do cool things through you. Doesn't mean you're not gonna do stuff for God. But he didn't just save you for you to do stuff. He saved you so you could see stuff. His stuff, his work, his nature, his glory. And so that through you, all principalities and powers could worship God more fully and see his greatness forever. Isn't that such a bigger gospel than my whole life's about me and God loves me because I'm awesome and he's gonna make my life better because he likes me. That's the American gospel. Baloney. It's not the gospel. You were saved by God, from God, for God. He ransomed you for his own purposes, for his own glory. And it's his privilege to share that purpose with you. And it's our privilege to dive in and understand it and to interact with it and to see the greatness and the complexity of God's nature and redemption. Isn't that cool? Mm. God, thank you for uh, this word. Thank you for this passage. And God, now as we, as we spend the next 10, 15 minutes interacting with it in groups, I pray that we would be able to minister to one another. God, that we would have something edifying to say to each other. And even if we just need to sit and listen, God, that that would be good. I pray that we would be the body this morning that we would be the church, that we would uh, talk about the gospel and enjoy having a conversation about it. So Lord, please minister in these circles. Please work, God. We believe that the church is not supposed to just sit and listen. They're supposed to engage and use their gifts to build up the body. So Lord, would you please just work here in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.